Like people didn't live long. You just didn't yeah. live, didn't live as well as we live today. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elpstrom. He was the founder and leader of the Flying Tigers, a band of mercenary pilots who defended China against the Japanese onslaught and inspired the imagination of the American public. This week we talk about the life of Texas aviation legend and pioneer, Claire Chenault. But first, what's your favorite Chinese restaurant in Texas? Well, I'll just jump out there. There was a place in Richardson that I used to go when I worked down there. Um, there's lots of great Chinese places. But this one used to be called Hong Kong, I think. But now, according to Sean, it's called Kieran Court. But it's been a few years, so... Maybe I have to come to Richardson and have some Chinese food again. Yeah, they have delicious, delicious dim sum. Um, and lots of frightening dim sum as well that you really kind of need to be like Andrew Zimmern and just try it. Um, but actually, my favorite place is the first place I ever ate Chinese food in Texas. Uh, first place I ever ate any Chinese food, which was a Hunan restaurant, which is still located across the street from Sykes Center Mall in Wichita Falls, Texas. Love that place. Well, I can't really single out or recall a single Chinese food place, but there was a great uh, Thai food place in College Station when I lived there, which was just down the street from the main campus. It was next to the laundromat. So I would go and do my laundry and eat Thai food. In the dark days after Pearl Harbor, nothing lifted the spirits of Americans reeling from defeat after defeat like the Flying Tigers. The legend of this band of scrappy misfit American pilots flying their shark-mouth-painted fighters for the Chinese and not only taking on but beating the best the Japanese could send against them served to rally the American morale and inspired thousands of young men to volunteer to do their part. History tells the story of these men and their effectiveness somewhat differently. But the root of the story is there. And at the very center of that is a gruff and garrulous Texan considered old at the time despite being not quite 50. Claire Chenault had a dream of fighter aircraft dominating the sky and of China being the unsinkable aircraft carrier that would ultimately prove to be Japan's downfall. The Flying Tigers, and later the China Air Task Force, were the ultimate extensions of that dream. But how did a farm boy, born in Commerce, Texas, and raised in Louisiana, wind up commanding the Air Force of China? Claire Lee Chenault was born on September 6, 1893 in Commerce, Texas. He was the son of John Stonewall Jackson and Jesse Lee Chenault. He was related to Sam Houston through his father and to Robert E. Lee through his mother. At a very young age, he moved with his family to Louisiana. His mother died when he was five, and he was raised by his father, a farmer. He was a very smart boy, and he graduated from high school early. In order to attend college, in order to attend college, Chenault's father listed his birth year as 1889 so that he could enroll at Louisiana State University. He ended up graduating from the Louisiana State Normal College with a teaching degree. Normal schools are, were universities at the time that were dedicated to teaching uh, school teachers. While in school, he also participated in the LSU Reserve Officer Training Corps program, receiving basic military training. After he graduated from LSU, Chenault taught school throughout the South, including Athens, Louisiana, Biloxi, Mississippi, and Louisville, Kentucky. In 1911, he married Nell Thompson, 
in a marriage that lasted 35 years and produced eight children. He and Nell moved to West Carroll Parish in Louisiana in 1913, where he became the principal of Kilbourne School. He was 20 years old at this point, though everyone else thinks he's 23. In 1917, as the United States is preparing to enter World War I, Chenault entered the U.S. Army and completed officer school in Indiana. He transferred immediately to the Signal Corps Aviation Section. From this point on, aviation became his life, though he didn't learn to fly until after the war. Like so many pilots of his day, Chenault earned his wings at Kelly Field in San Antonio, Texas. He received his wings in 1919. Chenault studied aeronautical engineering at Kelly and in 1920 transferred to the regular Army. From 1919 to 1923, he was with the Border Patrol performing squadron duties at Gerstner Field, Louisiana, and Ellington Field in Houston, and also Fort Bliss in El Paso. In September 1923, he was transferred to Hawaii for three years at Luke Field as commanding officer of the 19th Pursuit Squadron. Chenault came home to instruct for two years at Brooksfield in San Antonio, where he was promoted to captain in April of 1929 and named Director of Flying. He next attended the Air Corps Tactical School at Langley Field, Virginia, graduating in June 1931 and remained there as an instructor. Top Gun. <laughs> In addition, from 1930 to 1936, Chenault was a member of the United States Pursuit Development Board, and he was the leader of the Air Corps Expedition Group, which was also known as Three Men on a Flying Trapeze. Chenault and Staff Sergeants Billy McDonald and J.H. William flew Boeing P-12 biplanes, which were maneuverable little fighters with a top speed of 194 miles an hour. Their dazzling display involved close maneuvering and even closer coordination, the final stunt being a full 360-degree roll while all three planes were tied together. After 20 years in the Air Corps, Chenault was worn out. He was partially deaf from years of flying in open cockpit aircraft and suffered from chronic bronchitis. Despite his tremendous capability as a pilot, the Air Corps, dominated by bomber-focused leadership, continually passed him over for promotion. He was too old, too sick, and too difficult to deal with, especially when he would get going about the capabilities of his fighters. In 1937, at the age of 42, Chenault retired from the Air Corps. However, at his last performance with the three men, there was a very important spectator. General Mao Pang Tso of the Nationalist Chinese Air Force witnessed this stunning display and the emotional retirement of Claire Chenault, and shortly afterwards... Chenault received an offer from Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, Premier of China, and his wife, Madame Shang, to come to China and be a technical advisor for the Chinese Air Force. Kai-shek needed a talented, experienced aviator to lead and organize his country's struggling Air Force. Chenault accepted the challenge. His initial contract was for three months, beginning in June 1937, at a salary of $1,000 a month. He was a civilian consultant charged with making a survey of the Chinese Air Force for China's Aeronautical Commission. Madame Chang was in charge of the commission and thus became Chenault's immediate supervisor. Chenault would quickly become a favorite of Madame Chang, a relationship that benefited his position and influence in later years. Chenault worked hard to organize and educate the eager young Chinese pilots who wanted to join in the defense of their country. However, China in 1937 was a noted morass of corruption, confusion, and political chaos. 
Between 1937 and 1941, the Chinese military establishment was made up of many regional military elements, considered the personal armies of powerful and wealthy land barons and warlords. Chang himself, while nominally the head of state, was merely the most powerful warlord in control of the central bureaucracy. He spent as much time fighting other warlords as he did fighting the communists, whom Chang had been fighting for several years. This situation led to bickering over leadership, disorganization and planning, and ineffective distribution of scarce resources. It would only get worse when Japan finally invaded China in August of 1937. After the war began, Chenault was given the rank of colonel in the Chinese Air Force and became Chiang Kai-shek's chief air advisor. He was primarily responsible for directing training programs, but also took on scouting missions in a Curtis Hawk fighter, allegedly even shooting down at least one Japanese aircraft. He also supervised a international force of mercenary pilots, mostly Russian and French, who flew Chinese planes in combat to make up for the lack of trained Chinese pilots. However, the problem wasn't a lack of willing men to fly, but a lack of planes, which forced Chenault to use mercenaries and to send many of the flight cadets back to the United States to complete their training. By 1940, it was clear that China had no hope of stopping the Japanese without an adequate air force. With the world locked in combat with each other, the only power in the West that was in a position to help China was the United States of America. The U.S. was already supplying France and Great Britain with the supplies that they needed to stand against Nazi Germany. And there was no love in America for Japan due to conflicting interests in the Far East. Chenault had been dispatched home in 1939 and 1940 to procure training for Chinese pilots and to buy obsolescent aircraft such as his own Curtis Hawk and older Boeing P-26 fighters. But in early 1941, he dreamed up a more ambitious plan for Chang's China. In late 1940, Chang sent Chenault and General Mao Ping-so back to the United States to lobby President Franklin D. Roosevelt to support a clandestine foreign aid program to China. By lucky fortune, Roosevelt had already been looking for a way to aid China in her struggle against the Japanese. With the president's tacit approval and help from Madame Chiang Kai-shek's brother, T.V. Sung, a doctor and financier who lived in Washington, D.C., Chenault was authorized to return to China with 100 Curtis P-40B Warhawk fighters that had originally been intended for Great Britain. General Mao returned to China in January, leaving Chenault to make the arrangements for delivery of the aircraft. But Chenault went a step further in his negotiations with the Roosevelt administration. He convinced the president to draft a secret executive order that would allow Chenault to recruit U.S. military aviators and ground personnel for a, quote, American volunteer group. Americans had served in the First World War in the famed Lafayette Escadrille, as well as in the Spanish Civil War, and most recently in the Eagle Squadrons for the Royal Air Force in the Battle of Britain. Chenault's intention was to form a similar group in China, giving the Chinese Air Force not only modern aircraft, but trained pilots to man them. The actual recruiting was done through a subsidiary of international aviation known as Central Aircraft Manufacturing Corporation, or CAMCO. A band of recruiters, including some retired U.S. Navy commanders, combed Army, Navy, and Marine bases looking for volunteers with a sense of adventure and some aviation experience. In exchange for signing a one-year contract, these men were told that when their time was up, they could go back to their old ranks. The deal was a good one. In 1941, most American pilots made about $260 a month. 
The AVG pay scale for pilots was $750 a month for a qualified squadron leader, $675 for a flight leader, and $600 a month for a wingman. Ground crewmen, depending on their specialty, received from $150 to $350 a month. Pilots were also promised a bonus of $500 for every confirmed kill. For a young pilot with little opportunity for advancement and seemingly little chance for action, this was an enticing offer. And 87 pilots and 300 ground crew signed up and shipped out to Chenault's advanced base in Burma, posing as tourists on the way since this was officially a top-secret mission. In Burma, Chenault directed the assembly of 99 P-40s. One had fallen into New York Harbor while it was being loaded onto a ship, and while it was recovered, it was waterlogged and mostly unusable. They set about familiarizing the pilots and the crews with their aircraft. He soon learned that a number of his pilots lied about their experience on air applications, claiming they'd been fighter pilots. Many had only flown bombers or transports or were still in training. Chenault worked with what he had, though, and divided the aircraft into three AVG squadrons. First squadron was designated Adam and Eve, second squadron was named the Panda Bears, and third squadron was called the Hells Angels. Among the volunteers was Gregory Pappy Boyington, a Marine pilot who later returned to the Marines to lead the famed Black Sheep Squadron and won the Medal of Honor. There were also two Texans, Fort Worth's Robert Prescott, who later founded the Flying Tiger Cargo Airline, and David Tex Hill, a protege of Chenault's who became Chenault's second-in-command and stayed with them throughout the war. Chenault got to work training the men on his way of doing things. Training was difficult, a mechanical failure in the aircraft and accident soon reduced the effective number of planes to 55. Soon he shaped his force around his dominant personality and clear ideas about how they should combat the Japanese. He wasn't interested in the Air Corps way of air combat. Chenault told his men to ignore everything they had learned about tactics, which was rooted in World War I dogfighting. The Japanese aircraft were far superior at close turning, and their aircraft were way more maneuverable than anything the Americans or British currently had in the air. Chenault trained his pilots to fly above their targets, use their superior speed and dense machine gun fire to dive through in a slashing attack, and then climb back for another run. This dive and zoom tactic was the sure ticket to negating Japan's advantages. Chenault also intended to use a local network of spotters in the Chinese countryside to alert the squadrons of impending Japanese attack, and his contacts back in China went about building the network. These spotters and their connections with local villages would also serve as a de facto rescue unit for any pilots who were shot down. AVG pilots were issued jackets with large patches to wear on their backs, promising, in several Chinese dialects, that anyone who gave aid to a downed airman would be given a substantial reward by Premier Shang. These blood chits are highly valuable collector's items today. Finally, the Warhawks of the AVG were given camouflage and, more importantly, were painted with the now-famous shark mouth over the radiator intake under the aircraft's propeller. This gave their planes their famous, characteristic, menacing look. In late November 1941, most of the pilots were trained and Chenault's network was set up. Two squadrons, 1st Squadron and the Hells Angels, were based in Kuming in China, while the 3rd, the Panda Bears, stayed in Rangoon to supplement the British Hurricanes that were based there. A few weeks later, Pearl Harbor happened, and suddenly, the United States and Britain were at war with Japan. Beginning on December 8th, Chenault's men attacked ground targets and engaged enemy aircraft throughout the China-Burma-India, or CBI, theater of operations. 
Their mission was to protect the Burma Road, a vital 600-mile-long supply line that ran through the mountainous terrain between Lashiao in Burma and Kunming. Putting the team tactics to the test day after day over China's cities and hamlets, the AVG racked up impressive victories over Japanese forces. Within a month, they had destroyed 75 enemy aircraft to just five losses of their own, a higher kill rate than any other Allied unit at that point in the war. Their deeds quickly assumed legendary proportions in the American press as well as in nations across the world. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, not a man for idle praise, cabled the governor of Burma in 1942. Quote, The victories of these Americans over the rice paddies of Burma are comparable in character, if not in scope, with those won by the Royal Air Force over the hop fields of Kent in the Battle of Britain. The AVG's agents in the U.S. also drummed up publicity for the group, and the nation's imagination was quickly captured. Time magazine latched onto this small initial victory. In an article, Blood for the Tigers, they extolled the early victories and introduced the name Flying Tigers. It was a name coined by the AVG staff. Disney soon produced a logo for the AVG. It was a pouncing tiger jumping out of a V for victory. Soon this logo made its way to the shark-mouth fighters and pilots' flight jackets, along with additional replacement fighters where they could be spared. Despite their popularity, the Flying Tigers and Chenault were something of an embarrassment to the Pentagon. Chenault became America's first military leader to be publicly recognized for striking a blow against the Japanese military forces. At the time, though, Chenault was not actually a member of the American military, having been forced out as a captain. He was just an American civilian mercenary who was paid and promoted to colonel by Chiang Kai-shek. All of the Americans in the group were also mercenaries, and technically members of the Chinese military. Still, they fought on, despite being pushed out of Burma and having more eventual losses. From December 1941 until July 1942, the Tigers were in almost constant action. Their bases were primitive and undersupplied. They had few medical facilities, and most of the men had either malaria or dysentery, or both. Pay was miserable, and despite their high kill rate, Shang often didn't come through on the promise of bonus for each kill. But Chenault proved that he could maintain an effective fighting force in China. The AVG is officially credited with 297 enemy aircraft destroyed, including 229 in the air. 14 AVG pilots killed in action, captured, or disappeared on combat mission. Two died of wounds sustained in bombing raids, and six were killed in accidents during the Flying Tigers' existence as a combat air force. The AVG's kill ratio was superior to that of contemporary Allied air groups in Malaysia, the Philippines, and elsewhere in the Pacific Theater, and in fact, for until much later in the Pacific War. Flying Tigers' success is all the more remarkable, because they were outnumbered by Japanese fighters in almost every single engagement. In July 1942, the U.S. Army Air Force officially absorbed the AVG. Chenault had already been re-inducted into the force as a colonel that April and promoted to brigadier general a few days later. Many of the original volunteers had already left, and most of the others chose to return home, though nearly all of them returned to service of some kind, either as instructors or combat pilots elsewhere. Only five men, including Tex Hill, stayed in China with Chenault, and the AVG became the 23rd Fighter Group in the China Air Task Force under the overall command of General Clayton Bristle. 
Chanel resisted being under the command of anyone, and Chang protested at the idea of anyone commanding Allied air forces in China besides Chanel. As a result of this friction, uh, General Brussel was soon replaced. Chanel became embroiled with a ah, Chanel soon became embroiled in a bitter struggle for influence in China, and influence over Chang with another brittle personality, General Joseph Stilwell. Stilwell was the American commander in China and was serving as chief of staff of Shang's military, though he and Shang mutually detested each other. In the end, Chenault got his way more often than not, and in 1944, Stilwell's dislike of Shang and Chenault eventually cost him his job. The China Air Task Force, which grew to include additional fighter squadrons as well as some bombers, was dissolved in mid-1943 and replaced with the 14th Air Force, under now Major General Chenault's command. The 14th Air Force retained the logo of the Flying Tigers and was responsible for air operations over all of southern China and Indochina. It included Army Air Force fighter, bomber, and transport units, as well as a composite wing with pilots from both the Army Air Force as well as the Chinese Air Force. More importantly, Chenault was responsible for maintaining and protecting the vital air supply line over the Himalayas, the Hump, a dangerous flight path that was the sole Allied lifeline to China from 1942 to 1945. By the end of World War II, the 14th Air Force had achieved air superiority over the skies of China and established a ratio of 7.7 .7 enemy planes destroyed for every American plane lost in combat. Overall, military officials estimated that over 4,000 Japanese planes were destroyed or damaged in the China-Burma-India theater during the war. In addition, they estimated that air units in China destroyed over a million tons of shipping, over a thousand locomotives, almost 5,000 trucks, and nearly 600 bridges. The Air Transport Command also delivered approximately 650,000 tons of supplies to China and supplied the entire 14th Air Force and the Chinese military, as well as the earliest B-29 bomber squadrons, which had begun bombing Japan in 1944. By the summer of 1945, it was clear that the war with Japan would be won in the seas and skies above Japan itself, and not in China. Shang's military operations had largely stopped, and he was preparing for a post-war conflict with the Communists. Chenault's military service in China was no longer needed. In July of 45, Chenault returned to the United States for a brief assignment at the Army Air Force headquarters in Washington, D.C., before announcing his retirement in October of that year. For his service in the war, Chenault was awarded the Army Distinguished Service Medal with one oak leaf cluster, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Chinese Order of the Celestial Banner and of Blue Sky and White Sun, the French Croix de Guerre, and the Order of the British Empire. However, China wasn't quite done with Claire Chenault. An ardent anti-communist to believe that Chiang could keep China from falling into communist hands, he returned after the war to continue to support his former boss. In 1946, he purchased several surplus military aircraft to create the Chinese National Relief and Rehabilitation Administration Air Transport, ostensibly China's first airline. Now, The stated purpose of the airline was to deliver relief supplies to war-ravaged China, but the service was quickly co-opted by Chang to facilitate aid to national China to facilitate aid to his forces when open war broke out with the Chinese communists. Many of the first pilots in what was then the Civil Air Transport were Flying Tigers veterans. 
1950, after Chiang lost control of mainland China to the communists and relocated to Taiwan, the CIA purchased his shares of the CAT and operated the airline as a clandestine intelligence operation. They were used in supply missions and French forces in Indochina and in other anti-communist and anti-independence efforts in Thailand, Burma, and in Indonesia. In the 1960s, CAT also included the Air America operations, which supplied the intelligence community and others during the Vietnam conflict. And, of course, during that whole time, CAT also did operate as Taiwan's official airline. Chenault, who remained involved in CAT's operations, returned home to Louisiana. He became a shareholder in Robert Prescott's Flying Tiger Line. He also testified before Congress about the fall of China to the communists and again in the late 50s to the House Un-American Activities Committee about the Korean War. In 1949, he published his memoirs, which remain controversial because of his opinions about Chang and Joseph Stilwell. In 1946, Chenault's marriage with Nell ended in divorce. A year later, he remarried to 22-year-old Chinese journalist Chen Anna Jingmei. They had two daughters together. Anna worked in public relations at CAT and Flying Tiger for some years, but also was a tireless lobbyist for the Republic of China, as Chang's Taiwan government was known. In later years, she became heavily involved in Republican politics and was a key operative to Nixon's 68 presidential campaign. She wrote several books and is still alive today. Chenault died in 1958 from lung cancer. Nine days before his death, the Air Force raised him to the rank of Lieutenant General, and he was buried with full honors at Arlington National Cemetery. Because of Louisiana's anti-miscegenation laws remained in effect at the time, his marriage to Anna wasn't legal in Louisiana. In order to ensure that Anna and his daughters received an inheritance from his estate, he arranged to have his will probated in Washington, D.C. Nell and their children were left most of his property in Louisiana assets, Anna and her daughters were given all of his CAT and Flying Tiger Line shares, which made them all very rich women. Since his death, Chenault has been inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame, the Texas Aviation Hall of Fame, and his medals and other decorations have been on prominent display at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Today, the U.S. Air Force 23rd Air Group still retains the Flying Tiger logo as its official symbol, and its aircraft still bear the shark mouth paint job. There are statues of him in Taipei, Taiwan, as well as in the Louisiana State Capitol Building. The Chenault Aviation and Military Museum is located at Monroe Regional Airport and is directed by his granddaughter, Nell Calloway. There's even a statue of Chenault in Communist China, where recent years has seen the People's Republic of China warm to their stance on the Flying Tigers. In addition, there's a historical marker at his birthplace in Commerce, Texas, and on October 14, 2015, in a collaborative effort with Texas A&M University Commerce, a second marker at the site was dedicated in two translations of Mandarin. It is the first state historical marker in Texas in Chinese, showing just how much pride Texas has for this gruff pilot and his band of flying tigers. Quite the uh, rugged and uh, influential individual. Well, I just yes. I mean, don't mess with Texas. I think that's what uh, <laughs> I think that's what the the Japanese and the Nazis could have learned in World War II is don't mess with Texas. <laughs> yeah, now yeah, Chenault was. I mean, he's he is a Texan. He's clearly born in Texas. Uh, he was raised just over the border in Louisiana, but we still are going to claim. Um, we'll let Louisiana have somewhat for him, but we still are going to claim the guy. Um, but yeah, he's the Flying Tigers are like. I mean, when you really think. 
at least to me, when you think about World War II aviation, there's three things you think about. You think of the British in the Battle of Britain. You think about, you know, Baba Black Sheep. And you think about the Flying Tigers. And, and Claire Chenault was involved in two of those those things, which was the Black Sheep Squadron and the, the Flying Tigers. Well, uh, well, I think, Sean, even even if he'd failed, that paint job would live yeah. on in infamy. I mean, yeah. I think it was it was it's brilliant. Uh, yeah. I I think you know I can remember there was a a book about the Flying Tigers that I read like when I was a kid, and it was just it was one of those things of like, what a cool story. Robert Lee Scott. Well, Robert Lee Scott was also a Flying Tiger, and he wrote a book called God Is My Co-Pilot, which may was made into a movie uh, during the war. Actually, John Wayne's first wartime movie was called The Flying Tigers, and it was a fictionalized account of the Flying Tigers. Uh, although Wayne played the leader of the group, and he definitely was not playing Claire Chenault. Uh, but uh, that's that's the thing that I remember the most is John Wayne flying that you know in the movie about the Flying Tigers. Um, but you know, every every you know, as a kid growing up reading books about World War II and big big picture books of World War II, you know, you see I would see that picture of that that P-40 Warhawk with the with the shark mouth, and I'd see I. There would be lots of pictures of the, the bloodshed, the jackets, which has the American flag, that's the Chinese nationalist flag, and then lots of writing on it about bring this pilot, this brave American pilot, to re- receive your reward. Well, you know, what I wonder with this story is, is like, it's interesting just because what, you know, what determination, this guy had a really great military career, and then just sort of things sort of sputtered out for him because they thought he was at the end of his rope. And then you know he was an he was an older gent, and just sheer grit alone really decimated the Japanese air force with just a handful of planes for years. Uh, he he wasn't exactly an older gent. Uh, in 1937, he was like just over 40, which he's right. just like the same age as we are. But I understand that, Jim. But like now, <laughs> yeah, like 40 yeah. now is you know like you got to be like 65 now is 40 then. <laughs> <laughs> people didn't live long you just didn't, yeah. live, didn't live as well as we didn't live today so yeah. God bless these yeah. amazing times we're living in right <laughs> right yeah uh, he was I mean the idea was really remarkable um, he was he was a charmer he was really a kind of an interesting character he, you know you look at him and he looks like he's just cut out of leather um but he actually was very—he was very charming to women. Um, you know, he was—he was very flattering to, to Madame Chang, and and you know, he was able to sweep a twenty-two-year-old, twenty-year-old uh, uh, journalist, Chinese journalist, off her feet. So, um, but um, he did not get along at all with the with the top brass, um, especially with Joe Stillwell. I mean, he was. Yeah, Joe Stillwell, Joseph Stillwell is known as Vinegar Joe, and they certainly were vinegar and water <laughs> between each other. Uh, if you if you don't know who Joseph Stillwell is, go back and watch the, the Steven Spielberg movie 1941, and he is the uh, the American commander in 1941, and you'll know who ah. Joe Stillwell is. Yeah, Robert Stack played him. Great underrated movies. Yes. Um. So, I I guess I'd ask this question: Is is um. These early clandestine involvements of the U.S. into foreign policy against in World mm-hmm. War II, you know, what would have happened if he just hadn't have gone? What if he had just, you know, said, I'm going back to my farm in Louisiana? 
Like, I, you know, the, the flying tigers wouldn't have happened. It was his, certainly his idea. And they may have gotten someone else to come and, and, uh, advise them. But, uh, the thing was, is up to that point, it was not, uh, American. It wasn't, it wasn't Chinese pilots mostly that were fighting. It was Russian, Soviet Russian pilots. Um, but then when the Germans invaded, uh, Russia, those pilots really got recalled to go fight for Soviet Union. So, um, I think it's an interesting thought to see, you know, what what would have happened. The, the thing is, they were it was a serendipitous occasion. People, you know, the the thing is, it's kind of like the Pony Express that you think this happened a lot, lot sooner before America got involved. Uh, you think it happened for a longer period of time, and really, uh, you know, it was like not quite a year of training, and then about six months worth of combat and it was after the war had already started um you know the pony express only lasted a few uh, not even a few years in the west but you know they they actually were not there fighting before america was thinking about getting in the war they were they were ready to start fighting but they kind of got started at the exact same almost the exact same time as pearl harbor occurred so it was really kind of uh, a, a fortunate event in a lot of sense because we did it we did have a victorious group out there fighting when everybody else was losing all around so keep them flying boys keep those keep those boys flying well i wonder that i I was impressed with the idea of he said throw out the textbook Mm -hmm. you can't beat these japanese planes flying like like they're better planes so we're just gonna fly higher and fly faster yeah we have we have to use different new we have to use different tactics and it was thinking outside the box. Yeah, and that was exactly what it was. They the the Japanese aircraft weren't necessarily always better, but they were way more maneuverable. Um, you you got into a turning fight. The the later in the war, the the second uh, highest American pilot uh, with over th- almost forty ki- um, almost forty victories um, was flying a, a another American aircraft, the P thirty eight Lightning, and he he got it. He decided to go into a turning fight with it with the japanese zero and he got shot down you know so you know bef- before that even happened claire chenault understood that you could not get into a turning fight with the japanese because they would they could outmaneuver you and they could shoot you down but he also knew that the japanese aircraft were lightly built they were lightly armed and so the p-40 warhawk could dive um even though it was much even though it was uh much less maneuverable it could dive very fast and and so fast it was so strong that if a Japanese pi- pilot tried to match them in a dive, in a lot of cases, their planes would tear apart in the air. So that was the type of, you know, that was the type of action that they that they took. They also would get up above, you know, and come out of the sun and and hit the Japanese from from above and uh, just get one quick pass, get a couple of bursts out, try to shoot down as many aircraft as they could, and then dive away and then and then and then fight another day. Man. I know it's yeah. wrong, and it probably will cutting this. I know it's wrong, but in my head, I really picture like Edward James almost. <laughs> but I probably watched too much of the BSG uh, uh, reverb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he really his face does look like his actually his face looks like uh, uh, he he looks like he looks like he in he, at the age of forty something, Chenault looks like Clint Eastwood looks today. <laughs> Well, you know, this is the problem is you, you fly around in open cockpit airplanes. Yeah, yeah, for, for most for of a your decade. Life. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the other thing that I was that I found interesting, and I had heard this story before, but I didn't know a lot of the details. That that he he basically started Air America. That that 
he he started a, an airline that was used to uh, to drop spies and supplies all over. Oh, I think uh, we've all, all over seen, China and all over Southeast Asia. So yeah, I think we've all seen the fantastic Mel Gibson vehicle. Isn't that uh, Mel Gibson and uh, Robert Downey Jr.? Yeah, this fantastic, underrated Jr. film that uh, you should go check out sometime when you're done checking out John Wayne's The Flying Tigers. Go watch John Wayne's The Flying Tigers. It's actually a really good movie. So yeah, all right, Pilgrim. Flying Tigers, American um, American uh, uh, Texans, Texan pilots in World War II. Gotta love it. Well, if you enjoy The Flying Tigers, if you have a connection, uh, shoot us a line on one of our social channels or give us an email. We always appreciate hearing from all you listeners out there. Very cool about uh, the uh, Chinese uh, Texas historic markers. So maybe I'll finally have a reason to go to Commerce, Texas. (laughs) Or a listener could send a picture that none of us have to go. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaw with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We love that you love this show, so why don't you do your Texas duty and tell your friends about what we're doing here. Get them to subscribe and get them to leave a review on iTunes because it helps us out to find listeners just like you. And you can be a true fan and support the show financially. Why not visit patreon.com slash Podcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas... Texas wants you anyway. 